In this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, I'm joined by Asia Orangio. She and I answer listener questions on finding marketing channels, seat-limited trials, building a brand, and a bunch of other topics. We have a great time doing it. Before I dive into that, I wanted to read a snippet from an email from a longtime listener, Josh, and he said, Hey, Rob, congrats on the 500th episode. Truly an epic accomplishment. I want to say I enjoy the new format. The recent two-part episode with you and Jordan was epic. It could just be recency bias, but I don't recall an episode that went so far into the weeds of the later bits of company building that I'm so familiar with. I also enjoy the follow-on episodes with founders and the way you intro those and talk briefly about their history so you can get to the meat so much faster. The one this week with Derek Reimer did that really well. Your solo episode was great as well. It resonated with many thoughts I've been harboring for years. He wrote a very nice email that I'm summarizing. He ends with, feels like I could just rant with you and have a beer about topics like this, which would be great. What this all circles back to is that I want to commend you for your approach. As one of the listeners mentioned in the 500th episode, your authenticity is very much appreciated. Everything you do is thoughtful, pragmatic, and truly helpful to the community you and Mike have built. Here's to 500 more. Thank you so much, Josh. Honestly, means a ton. And I, I really appreciate hearing that. I know that we you know, have been getting a lot more letters and comments and thoughts from listeners about episode types and topics and just different approaches. And I find that the more I'm experimenting, the more that people are able to weigh in. Like the recent Twitter poll I did where I said, should we redesign the podcast logo? And I believe it wound up being about 58% no and 42% yes. And so we'll see uh, here in the coming months if I get the itch to think about redesigning it. But with that, let's dive into our listener questions today. Asia Orangio, if you're not familiar with her, she is Asia Matos on Twitter. She is the founder and CEO of DemandMaven.io, where she helps SaaS founders find their first 100 customers, first 10K MRR or first 100K MRR with the confidence and clarity of a custom growth strategy and roadmap. And she helps with implementation too. So I have a ton of respect for Asia. She's doing great work. She does some work with Tiny Seed Founders. She does work with a lot of founders in the microconf space. And she just has a killer marketing instinct. She knows funnels. She knows how to get in, do jobs to be done interviews, execute on market channels to find one that works, start to scale it up, work with founders to do that. So Asia has a wealth of knowledge. She also runs, actually, if you haven't been listening to the In Demand podcast, she started it just a few months ago. And it's just her on the mic sharing her thoughts and her wisdom. And I highly recommend it. So that's called In Demand. And with that, let's dig into our listener questions on finding marketing channels, seat limited trials, building a brand and a couple other topics. Hope you enjoy it. Asia Arangio, thank you so much for uh, joining me on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Always love just working with you guys in general and super excited to answer some questions. <laughs> me too. I am stoked. And given your experience, we have some good questions about finding the right channels and about branding and about all that kind of stuff. So I'm stoked to dive in. And per our, our typical listener question format, voicemails go to the top of the stack. Our first voicemail is from Mike Lawler. Hey, Rob, I'm working on a modified first step of your uh, stair step approach. My app migrates subscriptions from whatever recurring billing software you're using, Chargebee, Zora, Recurly, etc., to uh, Stripe billing. It's a one-time fee that I'm considering eventually morphing into a productized service. I believe in the demand for the product. I've been contracted to do this exact thing two different times and then contracted another time to migrate an app onto Stripe billing. I've talked to some of my uh, fellow engineering managers that I know, and they've they've done something similar or have it on the roadmap. What I'm trying to figure out is what would be the most effective way and who would be the most effective group to market my product to. 
I think that there's a strong argument to market to both developers so that they can educate the CEOs if that ends up on their roadmap, and then also to the CEOs and founders of different SaaS companies. But I'm unsure what would be the best channel to do this. LinkedIn, Twitter, forums, etc. I don't think the SEO and SEM would be particularly effective because I'm not sure how many decision makers are searching for things like switch from Zora to Stripe billing or whatever it may be. Any suggestions you have would be awesome. Thanks so much. I love this question because my honest first thought was, why not SEO and SEM? <laughs> um, but but purely because, well, a couple of things to be thinking about from a more strategic perspective and then, you know, what I would actually do, which is I think that from a questions perspective to be thinking about and mulling over is who is the person who is ultimately going to live a better life because the product or, or the thing or the service or whatever it is, is, is solving that problem for? Is that ultimately the CEO or is that ultimately the developer? I think that's something to explore. But my guess is that while it might not be the fastest channel in the world, if this is enough of a pain or a problem, someone is probably searching it somewhere. And I think exploring, I mean, yes, like the SEO and SEM route is actually what I would start with. I would I would do the research, of course. I you know it wouldn't be necessarily a thing I would just like double down on immediately. I think you'd have to, you know, use a tool like Moz or Ahrefs to kind of see like, are people actually searching this? And based off of the result that Google is serving up, in theory, if the search results are relevant to what you guys ultimately do, then that actually might be a very valid channel. That was my first impression. I'm curious, though, Rob, what, what your thoughts were. Yeah, I was thinking that the, the SEO might be the longer term play. So it's something I would get in quick. But I think to rank quickly for that, I would start looking at Quora and Stack Overflow. Because my gut is that, as you said, Founders and CEOs, if they're a, if it's a hundred or two hundred person company, probably don't care. But if it's founder CEO of a five person startup, they're still involved in the Stripe billing or the Chargebee migration. So that's one place. But I really think that in general, it'll be the developer. It'll be some kind of developer who winds up doing this. And when they go to Google to search migrate from any of these places to Stripe, Quora should rank pretty high. Like, shouldn't there be? I'm guessing there's a question like, how do I move from Chargebee to Stripe billing? Like, I would Google that now and see what what's in the top ten. Are any of those places where you can contribute? You know, are any of those kind of user contributable forms or whatever? Stack Overflow is the other one because again, developers are going to use that. I love SEO for. I mean, I think if you wrote an article about that today on a brand new blog, I don't think it's going to rank immediately. And so that's where I like the. Core Stack Overflow, even LinkedIn, Facebook groups, Twitter. I mean, these are monitoring, you know, Twitter, it's not going to come up every day, right? But having a search or some type of monitor on this, sure, chime in on those conversations. Maybe once a week, you wind up with a customer once a month. I don't think that's going to be some massive influx. But I do think that you have a bit of learning to do right now. You want to talk to as many people as you can. And people with the burning pain point are just so much more willing to talk to you. That's what I love about it. But to your point, I love the idea. You know, I've, I've always loved the kind of the comparison SEO approach where you say, so in the old days, right, 10 years ago, it was like, here is Drip versus all of the other email providers. And it was a big grid, a big matrix. Well, now it's Drip versus MailChimp, Drip versus AWeber. Each of these is individual page. And you do a bunch of long form content such that when someone says comparing Drip versus MailChimp, either your page or MailChimp's probably, or maybe Quora, those are probably, I bet one of those three ranks at the top for that question. And I feel like this could be a little similar. But my concern is, again, if I, had a, if I didn't have a blog with any type of, of domain authority and I wrote 10 blog posts today, you know, or 10 essays or articles, do you think those would rank anytime soon? Or do you think you know, you'd have to build up that domain's authority first? 
<laughs> yeah, no, it would definitely take some time. But I'm actually kind of curious if if SEM would be something that would be a little bit of a faster route, even if it's not the most like infinitely scalable channel today, just depending on, of course, you know, the pricing model that you have. But SEM could actually be a way that you evaluate just the quality of some of those searches, if of course, there's enough just traffic volume in general for that. But that's definitely what I would use to test ideas and also just to test the funnel overall in terms of like, well, who's who is actually searching this and who is actually coming to the website, the marketing site and converting or signing up or asking questions. But I completely agree with going going to wherever people are talking about this problem and this pain, because it, it sounds like it's a it's a very common behavior, which makes me think it's something that people are talking about in some kind of capacity somewhere. And I would kind of like what you were saying, Rob, I would I would go there and join that conversation if you can. I didn't even think about Stack Exchange, but yes, that would absolutely be another place or another channel. And this may even be a stretch, but Quora could also be a place where you test the advertising platform as well. Quora ads also exist. And if I'm not mistaken, depending on the query, you can get some pretty qualified traffic and just engagement overall. It's definitely a test channel. I'm putting that in finger quotes, even though you can't see me. Definitely a test channel. Definitely something to just try with a limited budget if, if you have advertising budget in any kind of way. But yeah, I, I would be looking at what are the the most intent-driven channels that you can identify related to that behavior and related to that person. So I would put SEM in there. So uh, Google Ads, I would put Quora in there. Same thing for Stack Exchange, where people are intentionally looking for a way to solve a problem. Right. I like that you def- just define that because I think some folks might not know what intent-driven ads versus, I guess, it's, is it demographically based, right? That's like the Facebook ads where it's just like, hey, this person likes Dungeons and Dragons and they live in Minneapolis versus this person just said, how can I migrate to Stripe, right? That's intent versus just who they are and, and the platforms you named, the Google and, and Quora would be really good intent ones. I also liked, oh, and, and you you threw out a term SEM, which you and I both know what that means, but I'm imagining someone may be listening to it wondering how is that different than SEO? SEM, search engine marketing, is just kind of a synonym for buying ads on search engines, right? It's usually pay-per-click ads on Google is how I think of it, but of course it could be there's SEM in Amazon, right? I, you can buy ads if you have a book or a product up on Amazon and you see the sponsored ranking there. Obviously, you can buy on Bing and YouTube and Google and Yahoo, I guess, anymore. I don't even know at this point. <laughs> but I, really, I also really like the question that you asked at the start, which was, who will live a better life because of your service or product? That's such a good thing to be thinking about as you, as you get out and try to launch this. So thanks, Mike, for the question. I hope that was helpful. Our next question is from Cole Huey. Hey, Rob. Cole in Minneapolis here. I'm working on an app that facilitates HR employee onboarding processes. The setup takes a medium amount of effort. It's not integral to the business, but definitely takes some intentionality to set up. I had the idea of allowing them to create an account for free as a single user and take as much time as they want to set it up and have them pay once they start adding other users. Because of the nature of the app, they can't get value out of it on their own, so I think it prevents any ways to abuse it. Um, any pitfalls or drawbacks that I'm not seeing in this approach? Thanks. Interesting question. Asia, you have uh, thoughts on this? I, I have so many follow-up questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's do it. We can just, we'll just go. I'll just answer your questions. We'll make it up as we go along. <laughs> okay, so this is a tough one because for me, I think so much of... 
how you think about the onboarding process in general. And then also how much do you give away and how much time do you give someone to start making a decision? I think so much of it does depend on just your overall positioning in the market from a product perspective. So how white glove is your approach, for example, from a product perspective? And just how much friction is there naturally before, you know, time to value is ultimately met. So, and those are all things that we don't necessarily have all the information on, but, but I would say if there's a lot more, for lack of a better word, friction to get to that aha moment in the product. So if it takes just more time in general to configure things, to get things set up, part of me wonders, is it ultimately possible to speed that journey up? And without forsaking, of course, the overall customer experience, then also just getting to that time to, to the aha moment. Because I will say that no time limit on the one hand, I, I think depending on just again, that positioning in the in the product space, and then how complex the product is. On the one hand, I think that could actually be incredibly beneficial. But I also think it just ultimately depends on the user at the end of the day. If it's unclear to me, at least like who exactly we're selling to. But if I'm thinking if it's, you know, getting sold to like an HR manager, that person is like in a million different directions. I think with like a no time limit kind of scenario, unless you just had some really intentional onboarding and really intentional, whether that's a white glove approach or a fully, you know, self-serve kind of scenario, I think that you might end up getting forgotten. And that's kind of what would concern me. (laughs) So maybe in the no time limit scenario, I don't know, I, I could see, I could see pluses and minuses for both, but I would be much more concerned about just the HR person or whoever is ultimately the, the using the product, just completely getting distracted at the end of the day. That was my thought when I initially saw this or, or started thinking through it is without some kind of time pressure or some type of demo where they, they see either see you face to face or they're on a call and they see the product working and then you kind of follow up with them and there's some type of personal relationship just not sure how an HR product, again, I'm under the same assumption that, uh, that you are, that a busy HR professional is running this and, and that they're the one that would be purchasing. I don't see drawbacks to giving them a free single user trial that they can't do anything with. But I do think that personally, like upfront, it'd be demo only, period. Because the learnings you're going to get from doing demos are going to show you the pitfalls of the product, the questions they ask, and you're going to learn 10 times more than you will from someone just kind of tooling around in in the app on their own and then bailing, which is what most people will do. So that's the first thing. I don't know that I would keep demo only forever, but I would selling into HR like this, I would price it such that you can, because my guess is it will be high touch sales. And you're, you know, trying to build a $20 a month HR product selling into to orgs is how I say, unless it's 10 bucks per seat or something per employee that's onboarded permanently, which doesn't make a ton of sense. You need to have a high ticket price. And I think you need to justify the demo only. The time pressure thing is a little different, right? It's like, it's this is not going to be a self-service app. I, I don't know of, of any HR apps like this that are just set and forget it. People sign up, they onboard and it happens. I, it sounds like we're kind of in agreement. You have other thoughts on it? Yeah, I completely agree. I, I think the only other thing that I thought of as, as you're kind of chatting about who we're ultimately selling to in the HR world, at least... Yeah, I'm just I'm just reminded of all the most popular um, just HR platforms in general. Like, what are the other SaaS tools that an HR person might actually be using, like on any given day to day? And I'm just thinking about the experience that they have whenever they sign up for a product. Usually, they're talking to someone at some point. It, I just think it's so rare to let like a HR person, you know, professional, go willy nilly into a product. 
I think if anything, your in many ways, your experience will kind of be compared to other product experiences too. And if a lot of other product experiences in this HR space is very much that personal touch, white glove approach, then in a way you're not, I wouldn't say you're like literally competing with those experiences, but it definitely, there might actually already be a standard that a demo can ultimately help you meet just from like a creating that personal, that personal touch point. But yes, totally agree. That's one of the advantages you have as a founder, right? Is that in the early days and even as you go on, when you when you get on a call and it's like, yeah, I'm the founder of this, um, I'm a lead developer and I'm make, going to make it great for you. I mean, there, there's a little connection there. Now that can scare some people off. So you're not going to get Target or Best Buy to sign up with you the first day. But, you know, do you get a five or 10 person startup to be willing to to invest in in your solution? It's possible. So thank you for the question. I hope that was helpful. Our next question is about branding. It's from Robert Brandel, and he's from WebsiteToolTester.com. He says, hello, startups for the rest of us. As a longtime listener, I have a question for the show. I've become pretty decent at SEO and content marketing, but I was wondering if I shouldn't start investing into brand building at some point. I have a feeling this could accelerate our growth further. And then he asks, he says, can you maybe share a bit of the process of building the Drip brand or any other brands you've been involved with? Did you work with an agency? What were your goals and how did you measure them? Many thanks, Robert. And again, website tooltester.com. What do you think, Asia? I, I also love this because, and maybe it's splitting hairs just a tiny bit. And I'm super curious to hear what you think also, Rob. But so there's brand and then there's branding. <laughs> branding is very much, you know, the the colors and the, the fonts and typefaces and just things that you would leverage um, visually to represent your brand. And then there's building a brand. And I will say I am not a brand expert, but from the brand experts that I do know, Many of them would say that brand is so much beyond just the, you know, the colors and the fonts and logos and things that you have and the graphics that you're using. So much of it has to do with the overall culture of your business. And and culture, I think, is a word that can get sliced and diced in a million different ways, especially today. It might actually be very overused, but ultimately the core values of a particular business. And ultimately, when you think about building a brand, those core values are experienced by your customers and by your users and, and people who look to your brand for guidance and, you know, wherever it is that you're an expert in from an industry perspective. And then and then and even beyond where you get into the very like very highbrow Apple and like Steve Jobs, you know, level brand. But I think from a building a brand perspective, I think what could be a different way to think about it would be there's building that brand in that in that capacity. And then there's also either generating more word of mouth from a channel perspective. So I'd be curious if if maybe how how we think about and how we realize brand is is really just looking to expand on the word of mouth piece as like an extra channel to continue to just, you know, double down on and what can we do around word of mouth to expand that or is it literally oh no, like let's actually build a brand, something that means something to someone. And I would say that building a brand from a process perspective is much harder because it is so long-term, at least in my, in my like, you know, highbrow brand definition. (laughs) So I like the idea of them building a brand. I think it will take them a while and I do think it's a gamble, but here's, here's where, you know, when I look at at their site, they basically review website builders and e-commerce platforms and hosting platforms. And, you know, I'm sure they make buckets of money on, on affiliate links. It's a nice site, like it's not the typical crappy affiliate kind of referral setup. And it almost reminds me, I mean, given the quality of the content they have here, and I'm guessing their their organic rankings, I'm guessing they're just getting most of it from organic search. And that always, if I'm going to build a long-term business, it scares me. It concerns me that 
if no one's typing my, my URL into the browser, then I am always beholden to Google. And the example I think of that's similar to this, that I would, if I were in his shoes and wanted to, to expand and wanted to A, diversify, but B, get more traffic, is I would personally look at Wirecutter. And look at how they, because Wirecutter is just reviews. And there were a bunch of reviews of all types of electronic stuff before Wirecutter. And Wirecutter really just makes their money on, it's a bunch of affiliate links. They have ads and stuff now too, but they just build a really high quality thing. And I will type in wirecutter.com and then I will search for their best earbuds, Bluetooth earbuds or whatever. Why do I do that? Because somehow they built a brand. And the way I heard about it was people mentioning it on podcasts or linking to it in email newsletters or something in the ether just started, Wirecutter was a thing. And I'm sure, I don't think that was by accident. Like I don't think Wirecutter woke up one morning and it's like, oh, everybody loves us. Like I think they had to make some pretty deliberate steps to do that. So if I was in Robert's shoes, I would A, be looking at what did Wirecutter do? You know, try to watch interviews with their folks and figure out, did they have a plan? How do they execute on it? And B, you know, when I think about a brand like this, I think, well, I want the founder to be quoted in all the the articles that are on Forbes, Entrepreneur Magazine, even trying to get on like like web shows and podcasts to get quotes and snippets in, in press releases as, as like an expert. And then it's like Robert so-and-so, the founder of Website Tool Tester says, blah, blah, blah. Here's our quote about this. And, and you're almost trying to become an expert such that your site gleans some of your expertise. So I think that's the kind of a first thought. And now I'm just brainstorming ways to try to build the brand, right? Second one is you have a bunch of written content. Have you thought of starting essentially like a video show or a video review show of these things? Is there anyone doing that? And is that the next level here? Or is it a podcast? You know, what is a way, I have to guess there's a Wirecutter podcast. I've never looked, but given how strong their brand is, I would assume that there is. So I would think about, are there other media ways to go, whether it's starting that YouTube channel, if you don't already have it, is there the podcast, but how do you elevate yourself above the other 50 website builder, e-commerce and hosting review sites that are really just affiliate links and, and they're ranking the best one or the one that pays them the most money at the top. But how do you differentiate yourself from that? And from, from there, I think it's going beyond like just the written content and really thinking about what do people resonate with and what, what other examples have come before me. I think the, the thing I'll finish with is when I think of brand, I do like your differentiation, branding versus brand. Because I think of branding as colors and logo and visual and this and that. And brand is, I've, I've read this somewhere, but brand is not what you do, it's who you are. And brand is not how you see your company, it's how your customers see it or your prospects or your visitors. It's how they see it or hear about it. When I say Wirecutter, if other people have heard of the site, they say, oh, that's that reputable site that reviews you know, these things and I trust their recommendations. And somehow they built up that brand, it's how we see them. So th- those are my thoughts when I heard it. I'm curious if you have other thoughts given, given our back and forth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, really a question for you, just in your, in your experience, how would you recommend someone build a brand from like a personal brand and separating that? Or maybe it is just the same as like the actual business brand. But how do you kind of see building that personal brand versus the business brand? Or do you find it's very much the same? I think you can do it either way. I've done both. Rob Walling became a, started becoming a personal brand in the blogging space and then in the podcasting space. Then we started MicroConf and MicroConf started becoming its own brand that was affiliated with Mike and I, the co-founders of MicroConf. Now, I was really all in. I mean, MicroConf was a thing we did on the side. Startups for the Rest of Us was a thing we did on the side. And... It really, I was still all in on the Rob Walling brand until I started Drip and then I just got too busy. And what you'll notice is the Rob Walling brand these days is really tied heavily to the podcast MicroConf and Tiny Seed. Like, although I am the face of it, 
those brands are bigger than me. And I'm not doing a bunch of personal, like go to robbowling.com and there hasn't been a new essay in years, but you go to MicroConf and start a service and tiny seed and there's a bunch of new content coming out. And some of it's for me and some of it's from other people. So in his case, in Website Tool Tester, unless Robert wants to become a personal brand himself, which he's given no indication he has, I would, although he can be the founder and the expert and lend the insight, building a personal brand would involve him going out and maybe writing blog posts under his own name, you know, and starting a podcast where his brand is put ahead of Website Tool Tester. But if you started the Website Tool Tester podcast and it's just like, hey, I'm Robert, I'm the host of Website Tool Tester, I'm the founder as well. And then he goes into it, like Website Tool Tester gets the brand equity in that. And so in his case, personally, like, again, unless he really wants to build a personal brand, I don't think you need to. I think you can build the brand without having to become like the the celebrity founder. And people can know who you are. You know, I mean, I think of like Ruben Gomez with Bid Sketch and Doc Sketch. Like a lot of people, especially in our space, know who Ruben is, but he's not like some big personal brand. But but Doc Sketch and Bid Sketch have momentum and they really are these apps that do, you know, a lot of revenue and have customers and such. But like he's been able to do that, I think, while being a little bit in the background. And I guess with Website Tool Tester, I would, I would kind of propose that Robert or someone on his team, frankly, I mean, if you look at, so Castos, a tiny C batch one company, Craig Hewitt was the face of that brand. And then he, he hired Matt Medeiros within the last couple of weeks from the Matt Report, who is now, he's the director of podcaster success. And Matt is, you know, now going to start becoming more of that voice. And I think the Castos brand is still very strong. And it wasn't tied so closely to Craig that if Craig is only the co-host of the podcast or takes a few weeks of their, you know, off of their podcast or of blogging or whatever that like, I don't think the Castos brand suffers from that. And I think that's a really nice way to do it because it means that if you're a 50 or a hundred person company, Craig Hewitt doesn't still have to be recording the podcast every week. Right. Thank you for that breakdown. I I can hear that question in the back of some founders' minds of like, okay, but wait. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Robert. I hope that thought process was helpful. Our next question is from Eitan Efrati. And he says, love, love, love the show, what you guys are building and the message. Here's my question. I got laid off because of COVID-19 and now I'm looking to go back on my own. After more than five years of working for a venture capitalist and then one of their high growth portfolio companies, I know that I want to get involved with smaller profit driven startups. And I'm weighing a few different options of what my next steps could be. I've got four kids at home, a supportive wife and about six months of runway. And I'm trying to balance my confidence and enthusiasm with making smart decisions. I have a few options I want to lay out for you, and I'm curious to get your take. Option one is high risk. Go out on my own, which would start as contract work and evolve into a productized service. I would continue to tinker on the side with other ideas and probably try to build a more substantial business in the next one to two years. This requires zero funding. Option number two, medium risk. Join a fledgling startup, which is inviting me to be the CEO to try to restart sales and marketing instead of closing down. They invested hundreds of thousands of dollars in angel money into building out technology, have dozens of paying customers, but it's been several years and the company hasn't taken off beyond break even. They have one full-time employee and two co-founders are still involved. They'd be paying me in meaningful profit sharing and equity. Option number three is low risk. Take a full-time job and tinker on the side with either freelance work, my own business idea, or someone else's business idea. My market rate salary would put food on the table and then some, but I wouldn't have much time to think or do anything outside of my full-time work. I appreciate any insight you have. Thanks in advance. Asia, what do you think? Isn't this a fun one? This isn't it depends for sure, but let's, uh, <laughs> let's start with some thoughts. 
Yeah. From a decision-making framework perspective, like if we really had to think about how do we make decisions about just planning for our life and what's important to us and just looking at these options, it's very clear that this person values entrepreneurship in some kind of way. This person wants to do something just on their own in some, in some capacity. And going back to that statement of just becoming more independent, that's, that's, it's very clear that this is a core value of this person from personal experience. I actually, I did number one, I, I lived option number one, which was going out on my own starting as like a, you know, contractor kind of, you know, role, and then really building a service business over the next one to two years, I will say I did not quite go to the level of like productized service, which I think is like a step even further of the kinds of work that I do. But here's the gotcha, I don't have children, I don't have a mortgage. And there, there's just a few things about me making that choice and with zero funding, like I, I literally did it just I just started to do it. But the evaluation here is exactly right. It is absolutely high risk. You know, there is no guarantee to success for really any of these options. And I'm very much someone who just doesn't believe that job security is a thing that exists in the same way that it did 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So I am I am very much, you know, obviously, us even having the conversation, like we're all we've all got something entrepreneurial about us. But I think in terms of thinking about how to make this decision, I think what I would do is a couple of things. I would try to really dig deep into what is it about being more independent and what is it about starting your own thing that gives gives this person the satisfaction and the fulfillment in life. I mean, when we think about life just in general and like what your goals are and what what you want to make sure that you accomplish before we exit the world. <laughs> not to not to make it morbid, but I think many of us were motivated by something and there's something about achieving that independence and achieving that level of independence that we're obviously attracted to. I think what I would maybe go back to the person asking the question with would just be which option out of all the options, which one would you regret not doing? Like if you had to pick one, what would be the most regrettable experience out of all of them? And then also out of all of these, what could you in theory do without? That's how I would approach it. But I think in terms of just what I would do in this particular situation, given the context of just, you know, my family, my responsibilities, I think I hate to go middle of the road, but I actually think the medium risk is probably the risk, the amount of risk that I would I would end up taking purely just based off of my own personal values and, and the way that I think about what risk I would be comfortable taking. But I will say that it's very clear that some amount of entrepreneurialism or being a founder or doing your own thing or having a side hustle is very clearly important to this person. So I would try to figure out what's the minimum viable side hustle or a minimum viable foundership that this person can take and still be happy and feel fulfilled. Yeah, I love it. I mean, you you kind of covered the bases. You covered regret minimization framework, although you, you didn't say, but it's like, which of these will you regret not doing? That's Jeff Bezos thing, right? Regret minimization. And yeah, I mean, me personally, even back in the day, I did go out on my own, started as contract work and evolved into building and buying stuff on the side. So I would have done option one and I did have, I had one child at the time, so I did not have four, but there was some risk there. And I think there always is. The thing that I've always fallen back on is like, depending on your skill set and your experience, the odds of you being out of work, unless there's just a massive, massive recession the odds of you being out of work are pretty low as an educated, I mean, you've worked for a venture capitalist and then a high growth portfolio company. Like it sounds like you have some skills that are unique and will probably always be in demand. And especially now will be in demand remotely. So you're not even locked into, I have to work for someone where I live. So to me, the high risk or the, I mean, the, the low risk of taking a job, it's like, 
I don't know that I can ever recommend that for anybody, you know, in good conscience. Obviously, I had several salary jobs and I did it in the early days. But I think given that this is a turning point for you, it sounds like I have a tough time imagining that you would want to take the low risk. The fact that you're even evaluating the high and the medium, it implies that you probably, to me, shouldn't take the low risk. So the medium risk one sounds interesting. So that's the one of joining a fledgling startup, but it's it's kind of failing in essence, and it's flattened out. The fact that they're only going to pay him in meaningful profit sharing and equity, I don't, I don't know if he's getting a salary there or if he has to generate profit to do it. I'm a little bit, it's hard to turn a company around. It can be really stressful. So I guess if I knew more about the specifics of that, like, is it in my wheelhouse to do this? Or is this a flyer where it's like, taking over this company just to see what I can do versus, oh, I see, I see the angle. I see the path on how to turn that around. That changes that calculus, right? There are some specifics there. I mean, I've done, I did a turnaround with Hittail and I thought it was amazing and it was a great experience for me. I did it with a couple other products before that, but it was a lot of work and I didn't know that it was going to work, if it was going to work each time, you know, so there's quite a bit of risk there. I think something else I'd throw out is there's a really good book recommended to me uh, by Ruben Gomez, who I mentioned earlier in the episode, but it's uh, Decisive, How to Make Better Choices in Life and Work. And it's by Chip and Dan Heath, who are known for their Made to Stick and their Switch books. But there's a framework in there about, it's like four-step process designed to like counteract the biases that most of us have, the emotional biases and the pattern matching biases and just all these biases that, that are built into so much of our thinking. I don't know if Etan, if you have time to <laughs> to read that entire book before doing this, but that that's something I think anyone out there, you know, if you I got it on Audible myself and I listened to it and I took notes and I refer back to it every now and again just to remind myself, you know, if you gotta make a hard decision, there are some some frameworks to do it with. Mm-hmm. Something that something that you said that kind of triggered this memory that I had of, of when I started my business. And it was kind of, it was really an opportunity cost question of what is the opportunity cost of option one versus option two. And when I started Demand Maven, I was you know absolutely terrified, if I'm being honest. It was the most high risk thing I probably could have done with a plan, but at the same exact time, no real proof that my service had service market fit, if you will. But something that the CEO of my previous in-house, he, he was actually my boss from my previous in-house role who really encouraged me to go out on my own and to do option one. But something that he said was, what is the opportunity cost of you of you not doing Demand Maven? And it really came down to, well, you know, you could you could probably, yes, like go take another in-house job, which, you know, no, no tea, no shade on that. But then there's also, I mean, what would a MBA Emory University, you know, I'm in Atlanta, um, or I don't know, any other university here in the state, like, what would that cost? And I was like, Oh, my gosh, like 100, 120 K maybe. And he was like, Okay, great. So you're going to go start your business for free and basically go get your MBA, learn way more about starting a business than most MBA grads probably today. Again, no Tino shade to those who have MBAs. But the way that he framed that opportunity cost for me, was also really what helped me make the decision. And I did end up going for the high risk option. So maybe kind of like, you know, what what Rob is saying, it's very clear you have a high risk tolerance if you're evaluating these opportunities. (laughs) But that also could be another way to think about just the opportunity cost of what you're leaving on the table. Love it. Asia, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. If folks want to keep up with you, you are Asia Matos on Twitter and of course, demandmaven.io if they want to check out all the work you're doing helping SaaS founders reach their growth milestones. Thanks again for, uh, for hanging out with me. Thank you so much. This was great. Thanks again to Asia for joining me today. If you loved this episode, I would super appreciate a five-star rating in whatever device you use, whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Really appreciate it, even if you can't write a full uh, comment 
getting some type of review helps me keep going and helps us keep pushing forward with the show. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next Tuesday morning.